You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. Welcome to the Chooseify Radio Podcast. Today on the show, we are going to be talking about forced geo-arbitrage, which is a slightly different way of looking at the situation. We are going to be speaking with Rich Carey, who is in the military, Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, has traveled all over the world, and as his chosen lever to financial independence, he is crushing the real estate game. And to be honest with you, this is something, because it's a blind spot for Brad and myself, it's something that we don't spend a whole lot talking about, how you can use real estate to totally crush this game. We're going to try to rectify that situation today. And to help me with this, I have my co-host Brad here with me today. How you doing, buddy? Yeah, Jonathan, I'm doing great. I had the good fortune of meeting Rich at a FinCon in San Diego a couple of years ago and just a really, really nice guy. We had a great conversation and I got to learn a little bit about what he's doing with his life, basically with this amazing real estate investing, his career in the Air Force and what his plans are forward. Luckily, we reconnected a couple months ago, and I found out he was a big fan of Choose a Phi. He's obviously a member of the Phi community, and this was the perfect person to have on to really talk to us about getting into real estate investing on a level that, Jonathan, you and I are interested in. So yeah, this should be fascinating. And with that, Rich, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Rich, I love that you have done so well with real estate, especially with what many people might consider the limiting factors of not having the stability of being in one location, not having a background in real estate as a real estate agent. I mean, you really do have a lot of stuff that many people have used as excuses not to get involved in real estate. And I definitely want to talk about your strategies for success in this area. But before we do that, because this is a financial independence podcast, and because I know that you're so passionate about this concept, I'm curious, what lit that spark? How did you even find the idea of financial independence? Where does this come from? Okay, well, I start by saying I, I think I was a, a fan of financial independence without knowing what that word meant. Me and my wife have always been big savers, kind of like, you know, live frugally, save. We've been doing that kind of like from the beginning of our of my career, when, like since 2000. But probably just a few years ago, I'd say about maybe three years ago, I was just uh, playing around the web, you know, surfing around, and I ran across Jim Collins' blog, just JL Collins MH, where he's got like the stock series that kind of talks about an approach to money, an approach to investing. I had never really seen a blog like that before, and it kind of talked about like, this is how you should invest, and this is what you should do with your money. And I was kind of blown away, like, wow, this is a really cool website. That's the only one I'd ever seen. I'd never seen anything else like that before. I was kind of like, well, can I find anything else like this? And I think from his site, I ended up finding Paula Pants Afford Anything. And those are kind of the two places I found first and kind of realized that there was this whole community of like-minded people that thought just like I did. And I think from there, I ended up at FinCon. And then the story kind of starts from there. 
So Rich, you said you're naturally frugal. Talk yeah. me through what that looks like in your early life, even in your early career, like when you first came out of college and started making some money. What does your life look like as a frugal person before finding the real concept of phi, let's say? Okay, so when I say that I'm naturally frugal, maybe that's not totally fair. So when I first started my blog, my very first blog post ever it was called My Wife Knows Money. And basically the premise of that blog post was that the reason that I am successful, I think in money and in life, has a lot to do with my wife. My wife's Chinese, and I think sometimes Asians tend to be uh, very frugal and good with money. And that's where I sort of attribute some of my success. When I married her, I married the right person for me. And I think that us together, the beginning of my marriage, she realized that I had a bunch of student debt. And she asked me when we were dating, how much student debt do you have? And I said, <laughs> I have no idea. And I didn't really want to know. And she's like, well, you better figure it out. Like, get on the phone and find out. And I was kind of like, geez, I don't, I don't want to find out how much student debt I have. I mean, I just keep borrowing money, but I'll pay back someday. And so I did that. I, I made a bunch of phone calls and, and did a bunch of math. And I told her, I'm like, well, I, I have $32,000 in student debt. And she was very upset. And we were dating at the time. We weren't even engaged. And she actually started crying, which I thought was very strange, a very strange thing for a girl that you're dating to do. And she's like, we got to pay back this student debt of yours right now. And I'm like, really, we do? And that's kind of where this started for me. I kind of realized that she was right. And we paid back the student debt and we got married. We ended up buying a house a little bit later. And we ended up with this idea of, well, we bought this house now. Let's pay this house off quickly. And we, ended up, we actually ended up paying our uh, mortgage off, which was $280,000. We ended up paying off that in seven years. And I think that was kind of also a key to our success. Another thing, too, is just, just in line with all of this, her, her attitude was always kind of, let's not take fancy vacations. Let's not have expensive cars. You know, there's no reason to have expensive furniture. She didn't want stuff on her birthday. She didn't care about anniversaries. She didn't care about Valentine's Day. She didn't waste money on stuff like that. So that's kind of where we got our start with, uh, with saving. That's amazing. I was actually visualizing, you know, as you were talking about your wife or at this time, girlfriend going into tears when you told her your number. Yeah. I was visualizing my wife's face when she found out I had $168,000 in student loan debt. My wife has a very expressive face. She has very expressive eyebrows. I thought yeah. they were about to leave her head. That's how high the eyebrows were going when she told me that. No tears, but I think she wanted to cry. <laughs> I know that look. Yeah, I can certainly picture Danny with that look without question. And Rich, how great is how much student loan debt do you have? I think that's the ultimate five dating question. I mean, that is absolutely hilarious that you're on a random date and your girlfriend asked you that. That is awesome. And hearing you describe her, that description is very similar to my wife, Laura, which is really my secret of success in the FI world is finding the love of my life, a life partner who is amazingly frugal and who just doesn't want these things, just wants to focus on what makes us happy as opposed to these little trinkets that show affection right. that really is a secret of success. I remember early on in our marriage, I mean, I'm in the military, so I was in Guam, which is you know, some island in the middle of nowhere. I had to be gone for our first Valentine's together. And so I thought I would do something that, you know, any smart husband would do. When I was gone, I had a dozen roses sent to the house 
And then like I called her, I think the next day, and I'm like, did you get the roses? And she's like, how much did those roses cost? And I'm like, <laughs> uh, I think they cost a lot, $200. So she's like, are you crazy? $200? She's like, never do that again. <laughs> and so I actually never do that again. I, I haven't sent her flowers since. To her, it's a waste of money. She'd rather put the money in the bank. That's fantastic. Hey, Rich, I just have one quick question. I'm always looking for actionable tips for the audience. And, and one thing that stuck out to me was you had student loan debt. So I think by yeah. that, my wife knows money article, I think it was somewhere around $32,000, but yet you followed the military path. So I'm curious, did you do ROTC? Did you do some type of OCS after graduation and you didn't know you were going to do military while you're in undergrad? I guess I'm curious how you came out with that type of debt and were continually racking it up as you described in your story while pursuing the military path. The way that it worked out was when I was in school, I just kept borrowing money and borrowing money. Even though I came into the military, the military didn't necessarily have a system for paying off your loans for you. There was no loan forgiveness or anything like that. So even though I joined the military, that student debt was still there the day I joined the military. So I still had to find a way to pay it back, even though I was an officer in the military. If you could have done it again, was there a different type of program? Maybe I'm misunderstanding how... ROTC oh, this is, programs and such work. I was under the impression that some of those offer full scholarships in essence. Are there, <laughs> are there things you would do differently, I guess? Well, that's the funny thing. The funny thing was I had a full scholarship from the military. They actually gave me a full scholarship. So I had, they were paying my tuition, they were paying my room and board. And I was like, even, I was even an RA in the dorms. So like food was covered and everything. Even though I had all of that, I was still borrowing money. They were letting me borrow money. And I was actually not necessarily using that money to pay bills that I needed to pay. I was using that money to like travel with my friends. You oh, know? so like you were, out, you were not like naturally frugal. Time. Like we're uncovering the secrets here. It was your <laughs> wife that caused you to change exactly. course here. No, no, this is, this is absolutely true. I made a change in my life when I married Eileen and she brought me around and got me to see things the right way. I was certainly somebody who felt like I should be living the high life and I deserve a new car and I deserve to live large and I deserve to travel with my rich friends. And that's how I lived until I met my wife. Wow. That's an interesting phrase. I deserve to. How many people go into an extraordinary amount of debt because I deserve to? That's fascinating, Rich. I remember my, my dad telling me, I said that I wanted to buy a car when I, I think I was in high school. And I said that I wanted to buy like a new Honda. I think a Honda Accord for some reason sounded really cool around like 1990. He's just like, you know, that's not a good idea. Like at your age, like you have no business buying a brand new car. And I said, I deserve a brand new car. I don't see why I shouldn't have one. And I had this like big argument with him. And I remember being very angry with him that he didn't think I should have a brand new car. And I mean, of course, now I can see that that thinking was flawed, but at the time, made perfect sense to me. Like, why can't I have these things? Why can't I have these things that I see other people have? That's just the attitude that I had at the time. So Rich, when you met Eileen, she sounds like this incredible influence on you. How quickly did your actual mindset change? That's a big <laughs> deal, right? Like from I deserve it to, oh, wow, I'm with this wonderful woman who wants to live this way. Did your internal state change? Do you recollect that? Yeah, I think when you're growing up, even when I was younger, I'd say even as young as like 12, but, but certainly by the time I was in college, the whole time that you're growing up, people always ask you, what kind of woman do you want to marry? 
I remember I always answered, uh, I mean, you, you know, whatever, you, you want to marry someone that's, you know, pretty, you know, somebody that's, all these different attributes are kind of obvious, but I always said, I want to marry somebody that knows how to handle money. I always said that ever since I was young. And I don't really know why I said that, but it's just something that I always said. And I believe I did that. I believe I married somebody that knows how to handle money. I think when I married her and I realized that I was wrong about money and she was right, I sort of adjusted my attitude real quick because I knew that that was the right thing to do. Hopefully that makes sense. And you know, it does remind me, Brad, of you're the average of the five people that you spend the most time with. And you know, when your center is so drastically removed by one of those frugal people being your spouse, um, that person has to count for like two or three of those people at that point, right? <laughs> yeah, no question about it. Maybe all five, frankly, especially when you have such an incredibly positive force like Rich's wife here. I mean, that's huge. It would take a lot to crush that I deserve it mentality. No, you're exactly right. I mean, she was a huge influence and it was, uh, I mean, it, I kind of felt like it happened almost in an instant. I mean, it happened in uh, our, our first year of marriage or actually, I, I would say before that, obviously. When we were when we were dating with my student loans, and I kind of realized, yeah, you're right. I got to get rid of these. So let's go back and let's talk about this first year of marriage. What drew you specifically to real estate? How did you guys find your first rental? I think for both of us, it was a always had a strong desire to do something of real estate, and that's been something that's been in my for me personally. It's just been something I've had since I was a child. My grandma has a very interesting story. My grandma on my mother's side has a very interesting story of. She kind of had to do the single mom thing. The grandfather on that side kind of left when my mom was very young. And she kind of like raised her four children on her own. But something very interesting that she did was that she, as a very young woman, she purchased a fourplex when she was like 20 something. And this was in Southern California. This is in like LA. I guess you could say she like house hacked a long, long time ago before anybody knew what house hacking was. But she purchased a fourplex and lived in one of the units and then rented the three other units out. And she just sort of innately knew that this would be a really good idea for her. And that fourplex of hers has been so important to her life, so important to her net worth, even today. Like it's a massive part of you know what her children are going to inherit when she passes away. And it's been such a core part of her net worth her whole life. And that always intrigued me. I've known about that property ever since I was a child. I knew I wanted to do something like that myself. And so that's what drew me to try to do something like that as soon as I could in the military. When I was in Guam for my first assignment in the military, I realized I couldn't buy a property there because there's too many typhoons and too many earthquakes and it wouldn't be a good investment. So I had to wait until my second assignment in Alexandria, Virginia, which is essentially Washington, D.C., where I finally was able to buy my first property which was a a townhouse for $280,000, which we lived in for two years and then moved away and ended up renting out, I think for the next about 13 years. Wow. So your inspiration for this slightly different choice was a decision that your grandmother made. I mean, that that inspiration transcended multiple generations. That's incredible that it had an impact, not just on the child, but on the grandchild. And I mean, at the time, I think everybody told her like, you're a Single mom, you have no business buying a house like this. Like, don't do it. It's a horrible idea. And you're going to go bankrupt and you have no business buying a house. They actually told her that's something a man should do, not a woman. And she did it. And it was huge for her. I think now we have the benefit of having so many different stories that have been documented of people winning by choosing to do some form of house hacking. But your grandmother is flying blind. I mean, that's courage, right? 
No, that's something, but what she did is something I'm very, very proud of. Rich, did you ever talk to your grandma? I mean, obviously this would be decades after the fact that she made that decision about what led her to that decision. And also like even like the bare bones. So you're looking to get into real estate investing and obviously your inspiration is your grandma. Did you ever talk to her about the numbers, how it was to be a (laughs) landlord? Did you ever actually talk to her about that stuff? You know, it's funny. I don't think I necessarily talked to her about her side of it. I didn't talk to her about what she went through at that age. And I think that's probably a great idea. I probably should have this discussion sometime soon. But what I did actually very recently was I talked to her very specifically about my numbers. Because again, it was for me, it was just very recently that I told friends, told family, you know, had a blog where I was open about what's going on in my life, you know, open on Facebook before I was able to just like openly share with people what I'm doing with real estate, because there's some, as I think you may understand, and sometimes people deal with, sometimes it's kind of awkward to share the success that you've had with close family and friends. And that's something that I've only done just recently. And sometimes it creates problems, you know, within a family. I did that with my grandmother and I told her the properties that I'd bought and how I bought them and what I paid for them and what I rented them out for. And her being somebody who understands real estate very well, she was like really happy, you know, and laughing and kind of like, wow, that's great. And she was like really happy for me. And it was like a very happy moment for both of us that we were sort of sharing this real estate success with each other. Well, let's qualify this for a second. So to be honest with you, we really haven't even told our audience how successful you've actually been at this. And I would imagine many people are thinking, okay, well, I know what, you know, I'm in the military and I know how difficult it is. You move to a station, maybe you consider getting a property there. A lot of people talk about purchasing one property at each different place that you go. So, you know, maybe you've been on two or three tours, maybe you have three or four different homes that you're renting out and that's cash flowing a certain amount. Rich, after you've been doing this for the period of time that you've been doing it, how many homes are you renting currently? I've been in the military for 18 years. Right now, I have 20 rental properties. Wow. All right, so let's set the frame on this. You're working in the military. You have a, a modest salary that grows as you continue to get promoted. How do you afford 20 properties? Is this being obtained through leverage? That's the kind of interesting thing about my particular story is because of the way that I saved and invested and the fact that I paid off my first property, the 20 properties that I own are properties that I actually paid cash for. So that's all paid off property. Wow. I mean, you actually followed basically a Dave Ramsey plan here. Like I could never visualize how you scale and pay for all of your properties cash, but you have 20 properties. None of them have a mortgage on it. Correct. Interestingly enough, Dave Ramsey was kind of my inspiration. This is, it's kind of a funny story. My inspiration for paying off my original loan on the house in, um, in Washington, DC, the one that we paid $280,000 for when we first bought that house, my wife said, let's pay it off as fast as we can. And I'm like, hold on a second. You know, we got like a good rate and 30 year loan, just invest the money elsewhere and, and take this slow. And there's no reason to pay it off quick. And then I read Dave Ramsey's total money makeover. And I saw in his book that like I had hit all these steps already and I was doing a great job and I'd already paid off all my debt. And, but there was a step in that I hadn't done yet. I hadn't done the step of paying off your, your mortgage. And I was like, oh my gosh, he wants me to pay off my mortgage? thought that was kind of crazy at first. And I thought about it. Well, wait a second. Well, maybe that makes sense. Maybe I should pay off my mortgage. So I went to my wife and I said, guess what? I think we should pay off our mortgage. And she's like, I told you a couple of years ago we should pay off our mortgage. So I finally came around and I, I had to hear it from somebody else. I had to hear it from Dave Ramsey. But eventually I agreed with her and we ended up paying off the mortgage. She said you could have saved us all a lot of time. 
if you just listen exactly. to me first. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. She, she had the idea first. Uh, I heard it from her, then Dave Ramsey, and then I was in agreement. Maybe Dave Ramsey heard it from her. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> so Rich, uh, place us in time here. How old are you when you bought this Alexandria property? Obviously, you're living a FI lifestyle basically because of your wife. What's your savings rate look like? How much money can you can you funnel into paying this principal down very quickly? First of all, we bought that house in 2003, and we ended up paying off that property in about seven years. I think it was a little bit less than seven years, very aggressively paying it off. I mean, we had a very high savings rate. At first, it wasn't as high because I was still a lower rank. Uh, it was probably about a 40% savings rate. But in the military, as I moved up in rank, all that extra money that I was making was going towards paying off the mortgage. And it probably ended up being more like a 60% savings rate or higher. Any windfall of any type that ever came up was also going towards paying off the mortgage. There was a short period of time where my wife was working as an accountant. She worked at Nextel. And so for that short period of time, I think it was just like a year and a half, all of her income was going uh, towards paying it off. There was also a short period of time where I was um, flipping houses with a partner. It, it didn't end up being a lot of money. And then interestingly enough, I was flipping houses. I was in Japan and I was flipping houses that were actually in Washington, D.C. The profits from that were going towards paying off the house. I was doing like everything I could fully focused on paying off this property as fast as I could. And then once it was paid off, which I think was 2009, the rent was coming in from that, you know, instead of just having like a cash flow of one or 200 a month, now I've got like almost the full $2,000 of cash flow coming in. That just increases our savings rate that much more. So there's a couple pieces to this. So you have a home that you have purchased with a mortgage for $280,000. And then the what you did over the, the seven years that we just described we just blurred through that in about 20 seconds, but that describes gazelle intensity for an extended period of time. Was that your sole investment focus was paying off the house? Were you putting any money into TSP or any other sort of investment accounts or was it a hundred percent? No, actually, no, actually I was, I mean, I, I was putting money into the TSP. Actually I was maxing out Roth IRAs. I wasn't neglecting those things and I don't recommend neglecting those things. I don't recommend like I'm going to stop contributing to my accounts because I'm trying to pay off a mortgage. I did those things first. And then on top of that, I was paying off my mortgage, but I was not contributing to a taxable account and I wasn't doing any other type of investing on top of that. Everything other than Roth IRA and TSP was going towards paying off my mortgage as fast as possible. All right, Rich. So as I understand it, you're paying this thing down like crazy as if it were your primary residence, but you only lived there for a couple of these years. And then the Air Force took you to another location in the world, right? Like you were not living there full time while you were paying this down like crazy people. Yeah, exactly. I only lived there for two years. And then I went on to Monterey, California. And then I went on to Japan for five years. But yet it was still your sole focus. You desperately wanted to pay off that mortgage, even though it wasn't your primary residence. Like that was just That's, the goal from yeah. day one, right? Exactly. And then at, the, at those other locations, Monterey, California and in Japan, I didn't purchase anything else. I was renting. In fact, in Monterey, California, the military gives you a certain amount of money to live in Monterey. They gave me 2300 a month and I lived in a place for 1300 so I was able to essentially pocket that extra thousand. That that thousand was essentially profit for me. And I'm assuming that all went into paying off your mortgage back in Virginia, right? It sure did. And I was there for three years. So you can do the math. 
that was a thousand a month saved for three years, all towards paying off my mortgage. I guess one of the things you hear people talking about different terms, and this isn't a real estate show, so we kind of have to define everything as we go at the same time. But there's kind of different ways that people make money on this. They use leverage, which you're not basically using at this particular point in time. Some people rely on an appreciation game, which is kind of scary, but that's a whole piece of this. And then some people look at just cash flow. Was appreciation the secret to your success? No, appreciation was not the key to my success, although I sure thought it was when I started. I thought I was the best investor in the world when I bought uh, this house when I bought this house in 2003 for $280,000. Now, I, I thought it was the worst mistake of my life. $280,000 for a townhouse seemed absurdly high in 2003. But about a year later, that house was worth almost $450,000. So I had already made all this money in like a year. And I thought, oh my gosh, I got to keep doing this. I got to keep it, it, because if it keeps appreciating at this rate, I'll be a multimillionaire like in a couple of years. And I need to buy more houses. That's kind of what I thought. I'm a genius. Like I bought a house and it went up 150000 in one year. Like this is amazing. And I think that's how a lot of people will sometimes get introduced to real estate. They'll see something like this and they'll be like, wow, this appreciation thing is, is gold. Like I can't believe this. But here's what you got to understand. I bought it in 2003. It appreciates that much. But I sold that house in 2016. How much did I sell it for 13 years later? I sold it for $400,000. It went down a little bit. It went from $450,000 back down to $400,000. If you do this math, it ends up at about a rate of 3% a year between 2003 and 2016. And people are kind of like, huh, what? Like, that doesn't sound right. But that's true of lots of locations. Like, that ends up being true of California. That ends up being true in. Honolulu, that ends up being true in um, you know, San Diego, when you look over long periods of time. A lot of people will focus on these periods of time where it jumps 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70% in a few years, and they'll think they're getting rich from real estate. And I would say that's sort of like buying Amazon or Apple at the right time and just making a killing. It has a lot to do with timing and luck. But really, over the long term, I don't think you make your money in appreciation. You might make 3 4% a year over a long run, but you're not going to make like huge money. And so I would say no, it's, it's not from appreciation. Yeah, that's an interesting calculation, Rich. I, I just did that. So while in our mind's eye, when we hear, oh, it went from 280000 to four hundred, that's an incredible amount of, of appreciation. If you actually just run the simple math and just multiply each successive year by basically 1.03, right? 3% higher. After 12 years, it's exactly $400,000. That is the perfect illustration of when you hear the numbers, it sounds like extraordinary appreciation. But when you actually look at it, that's 3% per year. And by the way, um, a lot of people would probably say that really it just kept up with inflation, you know, <laughs> which actually is, you know, isn't that great. So Rich, we've kind of already told people the end game. You have 20 properties paid for free and clear, which is absolutely incredible. I think even experienced real estate investors aspire to be able to say that at some point if they were being intellectually honest. But we have to get there because we just now, we talked about your first seven years and like a madman, you were trying to pay off $280,000 using you know a modest, although probably above median income. 
you were able to knock this out. But now it's been seven years. How do we go from one property paid free and clear to 20 properties? And are they spread all over the world as you pick up one at every duty station? Or is there something else here? There's a couple things here. One is you brought up buying one at every duty station. And that brings up something that I like to talk about when I'm when I'm talking to, to an audience about real estate. And that is people in the military, a lot of times they have this idea that the key to success in real estate is to buy like a property at every location you ever end up living and live in it for two or three years and then rent it out when you leave. And that's like a really, really bad idea. Like that doesn't work because it really depends what you buy a house for and what the price to rent ratio is as to whether or not once you move away, whether or not it's going to make money as a rental once you leave. Let's go back to that Um, and slow down on that price to rent ratio. Are we talking about the 1% rule? What does that mean for you? It's important to understand the 1% rule if you want to get an idea of whether or not you should buy a house at a particular location. And I think the 1% rule is something important maybe to to talk about right now. So I'll, I'll define it quickly. If I show up in a location and I want to decide whether or not I'm going to buy a house, I'm going to run the 1% rule to see whether or not this property would make sense to buy or whether I'd be better off renting it. And the 1% rule is essentially, if I can buy a house, let's say buy and renovate it to where it's ready to live in for $100,000 acquisition cost, I want to be able to rent that house out for 1% of that price per month. And so that would be $1,000. And if you can rent it out for at least $1,000 or more, then that potentially would be a good property to buy. It would be a good rental property. It could potentially be a moneymaker. If it's going to be like renting for a lot less than that, then you probably should not consider buying that property. You probably should consider renting there. And let's take the example of when I moved to Monterey, California. When I moved there, houses were selling like a two-bedroom, one-bath that they were trying to talk me into buying was selling for $900,000. But I asked them, well, what does it rent out for? Because according to my 1% rule, it'd have to run out for $9,000 a month to be worthy to purchase. So I know that when I move away, it would be a worthwhile rental property. It would be something that would make you a decent amount of money as a rental, but it only rents for 3,000 a month. So you can buy it for 900,000, but it only rents for 3,000 a month. It's a very bad idea to purchase a property like this. That's the 0.3% rule. I don't hear that talked about yeah, at all. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right. So anyway, I guess in a very roundabout way, I'm getting to what I ended up doing with real estate later. To be quite honest, I didn't know about the 1% rule when I bought my house in uh, Washington, DC. I just bought a house and my house did not meet the 1% rule. I bought it for $280,000 and uh, it rented out for about 2000 and later it rented out for about 2400 So it didn't quite meet the 1% rule. It wasn't really making me that much money. It was not a great rental property. It was not an ideal way to use my money. Um, When I moved to Montgomery, Alabama, later in my career, 2013, at this point in my career, I understood the 1% rule. And I looked around and I started to realize, wow, I could buy a property here. I could buy a property here for $45,000 and potentially rent it out for 900 a month. That's like the 2% rule. I'm doing twice as good as the 1% rule. This place is crazy. I have got to start investing here. And so that is what kind of made me realize I've been doing rentals in the wrong kind of city. 
I need to do it here. Essentially, all 20 of my properties are all in the same city. They're all in Montgomery, Alabama. I doubled down on that city. That's kind of how I ended up where I am today. I definitely want to dial into this, this focus on Montgomery, Alabama. This is the heart of the story. And this is where I know me personally, as a novice real estate investor, someone who's looking to get into it, but hasn't yet. This is an interesting thing because especially there, these low priced houses, right? You're describing, I think 45,000 or somewhere in that vicinity, right? 30 to $50,000 properties. When you first moved there and and you understood, okay, this is an opportunity. This is a 2% rule opportunity. Did you first buy one property and just kind of dip your toes in, or did you really dive into this? I think from my perspective, I did it conservatively. I bought the first property. I bought a property for $30,000, and then I put about $15,000 into it, so $45,000 total, and I rented it out for $750 a month. So it still fit the 1.5% rule, and it was a very good rental. There was a lot of like difficulty with that house. I, I, a lot of things, because I was brand new, didn't know what I was doing, I ran into a lot of difficulty with that house. Difficult enough of a situation where my wife actually thought like, wow, that was really tough on you. Yes, real estate just isn't for us. We probably should just forget about this. And I said, no, let's keep going. I want to buy a second and a third house right now. Let's do it. And I made offers on a second and a third house as soon as I got the first one rented out. Um, and I think this ended up being around, around Christmas. And so I bought house number two and three, I think within days of each other. And so I ha- had sort of house one, two, and three rented out fairly quickly. And then uh, to make a long story short, in a 10-month time period, ended up buying six properties in cash. I had the ability to do more. The numbers looked so good and everything seemed wonderful. But I mean, to be quite honest... I was thinking to myself, what if my tenants just stop paying? What if my tenants trash these places? What if the military bases close and everybody moves away and I lose all my money? Like I had all these crazy ideas in my head. This seems too good to be true. What if none of it works? I had six properties that were paid off. I ended up moving away. I moved to Germany and I thought like, let's just see what happens. I guess if things go well, I'll keep buying properties there. And then if they don't go well, at least they're paid off. I won't like getting in too much trouble. The end result was those properties did very, very well and I had very little problems. So I just kept buying. Let's go back and let's go a little bit deeper on that. So you found all these properties while you were stationed in Montgomery. So you are local at this point in time where you're really getting your feet wet and getting this experience. That's really cool. Where are you finding these deals? Are you walking the neighborhoods? Are they on the MLS? How are you finding them? There are a number of different ways that I ended up getting my properties, but probably at that time with the first few properties, it was just MLS, certainly like one, two, and three. I would say just MLS, but uh, I believe property number three or four was a short sale where I made an offer on it very early on and then ended up hearing two months later, oh, by the way, that offer was accepted. And I was like, what offer? They're like, oh, the one you made like two months ago. And I I, I don't remember that. And they're like, yeah, it's accepted. And it was like a really, really lowball offer. I ended up making lots and lots of lowball offers on lots and lots of properties, lots of short sales that I went after, lots of um, Fannie Mae foreclosures, lots of, there's something called HUD Home Store, but like basically two different kinds of foreclosures that you could They were advertised on uh, MLS, but they were something that required a lot more 
paperwork and discipline and pain in the ass basically to purchase. Well, let's go into that. So I'm really curious there. So there's a couple of limiting beliefs that I have. One is that I'm not going to be able to find deals on the MLS. I don't know how you feel about that now in 2018. That's, that's (laughs) limiting belief one. I'm sure two is that the hassle of having six properties and having someone call me directly and having to go change light bulbs, fix toilets, call handyman, like all of that stuff is is a little bit scary. And is there property management in place? Do they have your cell phone number? You know, those are different things that I'm curious about. Okay. So I guess first we'll talk about MLS again in Montgomery, Alabama, I'd say even now, but certainly at that time, more so at that time, that particular year, there were deals to be had on the MLS. It was an amazing time. The prices seemed very low and they were. And like I said, I was kind of skeptical. Like I bought six properties. My wife said, buy a lot more. And I was too scared to buy a lot more. She's like, let's get loans and buy 20. (laughs) And I was thinking like, well, that's crazy. Like it could be the worst mistake of my life and we could go bankrupt. And she's like, well, these prices are too good. You know, you're crazy to pass it up. But I was being conservative. So I paid cash and bought six. And then I waited a year to see if, to see if I went bankrupt or not, you know, and I didn't. But anyway, the MLS was working at that time. There were good deals to be had on it. I was offering cash and I could, I guess I could talk about that for a second. I offer cash for a property and I end up not getting it. I, it ends up that somebody else gets the property, but they're paying for it with a loan. What I'll find out is that that loan ended up not going through a month and a half later. You know, that person didn't qualify. And so this property ends up coming back on the market and the person's pissed off. They're upset. I'll come back in and make my cash offer again, but I'll make a lower cash offer because I know that they're desperate to sell this house because it came back on the market again and it's not as fresh of a deal as it was before. And they'll accept my lower cash offer because I'll say I can close in 10 days and you know it's a cash offer and I know you guys are back on the market again and you're in a hurry to sell. And so having the cash to buy a house gives you the ability to negotiate a lot more. Another thing that's cool about dealing with cash, I don't know if you've ever bought a, a house or bought a car when you use a loan. You end up signing about 40 or 50 times, right? When you buy a house with cash, you literally sign one document. You sign just one thing. And then you bought the house. And I almost thought that that was really cool. You know, Brad, I'm curious to get your input on this. But as I was thinking through this, when you listen to a lot of real estate shows, just in general, a lot of them are targeted to how to get a house with no money down, creative financing strategies. <laughs> Our audience is so radically different from that audience. We have cash. We ha- we're starting from a framework of a 50% yeah. savings rate. What a built in advantage for someone in the FI community saying, hey, I'm interested in real estate. I totally hear you. I mean, there are so many built-in advantages. And yeah, Rich, I really enjoyed that explanation of of the power of having cash. And I'm curious, just from the limiting beliefs perspective of, let's say, even someone in Richmond, Virginia, or in Monterey, California, where they're getting a 0.3% rule. And there are, as you're describing it, plentiful deals in Montgomery, Alabama in 2013 that reach the 2% rule. Have you ever reflected on why there was that imbalance, like why there weren't local investors that were just scooping these things up or even real estate companies in in Alabama or I don't know, in New York City that weren't just scooping these things up. Why do they exist in certain small markets like this? And was that just a 2013 thing or does that still exist today in some markets? 
Well, I mean, certainly about a year later, right? It's kind of like, oh, I'm going to buy a bunch more now because I realized that those were awesome deals. I realized that I was paying a decent amount more like a year later. Wow. You know, I missed, I, I, I don't want to say I missed the boat, but like I missed the really cheap deals. I didn't strike when the iron was hot. I didn't buy 20. I bought six and, and the prices had went up by a decent amount. It just happened that that was the right time or things just happened to be cheap for that particular year. Okay, so I'm now I'm the 1% rule or the 1.5% rule, and these are still great deals. I don't want people to listen to this podcast and just think, oh my gosh, I'm going to email Rich Carey now, and I'm, I'm, I want to buy a house in Montgomery because that's the only place in the entire country where deals are. Like, oh, that you're going to get case. those. You're going to get those emails yeah, either way. I know. I, I get them all the time. <laughs> yeah. But that's not the case. Like, Birmingham is the city that's right next to Montgomery. Like, Birmingham has these deals too. The cities that you're reading about all the time, like Austin, you know, the cities that have like massive growth and everybody's moving to and like are in magazines all the time because they're super popular and everybody loves them and they're building their growing jobs and all this kind of stuff. Okay, guess what? Those are the cities where you're not going to get the 1% rule because everybody's talking about them and everybody's already ran there and everybody's investing there and everybody's excited about it. But there are tons of other cities sort of in the middle of the U.S., just these small cities in the middle of nowhere where this is all possible. Montgomery is one of lots of cities like that where these types of things are possible. By no means is Montgomery some magic place. It just happens to be a city where I was stationed for 10 months. But this kind of thing exists in these smaller, low cost of living cities. You can't make this happen in a high cost of living city for like some of the, the reasons that I described. Like they're just there's too much investment. There's too much hype. All the investors are already there. Everybody wants to live there anyway. The opportunities are gone. You know, this is going to sound probably to the experienced real estate investor. This might sound dumb, but I think it's useful for me as someone that's kind of generically interested in real estate and probably to people in our audience that are listening to this thinking, how do I find these deals? We just talked about the MLS. Frankly, I don't even know how to access the MLS. I would imagine real estate agents can kind of open up those doors for you and maybe you can just log in. But like, what about tools like Zillow and Trulia, you know, things like that, that will give you access. You can draw the little map. Can you start to like search general local regions with open source free tools like that? Yeah. So when I was in my buying frenzy, what I ended up doing at one point was after I bought those six houses and then moved to Germany. And then I bought a few more houses and I was kind of like running out of money, but I wanted to buy a bunch more. So I sold my house in um, Washington, D.C., right? And so that gave me like a bunch of cash because I was paid off. And so I took like all the money from that and just kept buying houses in Montgomery, Alabama, which means I had a ton of money to buy houses with. And I was buying houses at a very fast rate. And what my wife was doing was my wife was the one who was finding houses on the Internet. And then working with my real estate agent in Montgomery, Alabama, and also working with my property management company, which I guess we haven't talked about yet. But she did it all on like Zillow and Trulia. That's what she used. She didn't have to work through a real estate agent. You don't have to have a real estate agent to have the information on an MLS anymore. The information that's on an MLS is almost instantly transferred to Zillow and Trulia with like maybe some very small exceptions and some very small mistakes, but like 99% of it is instantly on those two platforms. So you can just search on there. And so my wife had all these things set up where when new houses came on the market, she would get an email 
And then she would call up my real estate agent and say, go look at this house for us. And she'd go look and she'd take pictures. And we had like a whole system set up where we were just like, you know, buying houses quickly. And my wife was doing it all from Trulia and Zillow. You just made me so happy. I got my new hobby locked down. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so good at using the internet. <laughs> <laughs> so Rich, I, I want to lead into that question about the property manager and, and how you're running this empire of, of 20 real estate properties yeah. from abroad. But, but I guess my leading question to that is describe to us what these properties are like, like what is a 40 or $50,000 house in Montgomery look like? Is it low income? Is it middle income? Are there considerations to buying houses that inexpensively that, that you considered and ultimately overcame? Yeah. These houses that I'm buying are, Middle income, low middle income houses, they're, even though I bought some of them very cheap, I bought one of them for 30000 I bought some of them for 40000 they're all worth between sixty-five to maybe 80000 They're all three-bedroom, two-bath minimum. Some are four-bedroom, two-bath. They're in neighborhoods that are, I guess I would say like, it's in Montgomery, Alabama, and they're all kind of like in sort of a downtown area. I guess you could say that they're relatively safe neighborhoods with some crime. Me, as a military officer, I probably wouldn't live in these neighborhoods. I think there's a little bit more crime than I would want to live in myself. And the schools are probably not as good as I would want for my families. But by no means are these bad neighborhoods. By no means are there lots of crime. By by no means are these dangerous neighborhoods. I'll also say like the kind of like when somebody moves into one of my properties, from the outside, it's like the house is like freshly painted on the outside. It's from the outside, it looks really nice. The, the grass is mowed nicely. The inside of the house, it's going to have all brand new carpet. It's like all freshly painted. You know, the kitchen looks nice. It's probably been like recently remodeled. You know, kitchen, you know bathrooms look nice. Kitchen's nice. And every time somebody moves out, uh, the management company comes in and brings it up to looking that nice again. And somebody moves in. So I guess what I'm trying to say is it's not like it's some sort of a slumlord operation where, you know, there's like cockroaches everywhere and I don't ever fix anything. When things break, something's wrong, I get air conditioners broken or something, the tenant will call up my management company and like they will come out and get it fixed. You know, if like a toilet breaks on Christmas Eve, you know, then they'll call up the management company and they'll send somebody out and I'll have to pay some certain amount of money to get it fixed on Christmas Eve. And so that's the kind of level of care that we're giving uh, to our tenants. And I, hopefully that gives you an idea, a kind of, of, it's lower middle income, but by no means is it bad. It, uh, hopefully that gives you a sense. Yeah, it definitely does. And I think in a lot of people's mind's eyes, when they're hearing a $40,000 property, they're thinking this is the lowest of the low, but you're just describing, hey, this is maybe lower to middle income in yep. Montgomery, Alabama. I would say this is like working class. This is like um, the people that have like, you know, salary jobs, you know, teachers, uh, you know, factory workers, um, you know, I don't know, just like blue collar jobs. This is where they live. No, that makes sense. And you have 20 properties. You live abroad. You obviously have to have some type of system set up. You have this property manager. You have a team, I have to imagine. Yeah. Really talk us through this because I think this is where a lot of people get hung up. Like Jonathan described before, having to receive calls on his cell phone and having to go over and fix a toilet. Obviously, you're not flying from Korea or Germany to go fix a toilet in Alabama. Right. So yeah. talk us through your system and the actual properties. Like, how does this work for you on a 
week by week, month by month basis? And how involved are you personally? I wasn't involved in the management of my properties at all. I started with a management company from day one, from when I bought my first property. A couple of reasons for that. One was I was sort of practicing and getting ready for moving away because I was going to leave in 10 months. And I wanted to start working with a management company right away so I could work out the kinks and know that this property management company was going to work when I moved away. Another reason was I would hate you know, being a landlord. And I did not want to get phone calls. And I don't know how to fix toilets or do anything like that. Like, I don't know how to do any of that stuff. I don't want to be bothered with stuff like that. I'm happy to pay like the fee. I, I pay 10% management fee. I'm like happy to pay that fee, uh, you know, to a management company to handle that stuff for me because I don't want to deal with that stuff. And I build that fee into my thought process of I've got to pay this fee too. So I need to buy the house for at least this much money or, or it won't make sense as a rental property for me. I had that from day one. On the very first property, I bought that property. I was involved in all the rehab because I wanted to learn about all that stuff. And then once it was ready to go, I gave it to the management company. And then I bought the second and third property. Uh, the second property was moving ready. The third property needed a lot of work, and I was involved in all of that just because I wanted to go through the learning process. And once those were moving ready, I turned them over to the manager company, and they managed them for me. I was involved in a lot of rehab stuff when I lived there. And my managing company contacted me a lot about smaller details and, you know, kind of like, hey, this came up with your property and we're thinking about doing this. Like, what do you think? Do you think we should do A, B or C? They kind of asked my opinion on a lot of things. And I kind of didn't like that because I, I felt like, well, I'm paying them 10%. And a lot of these things they're asking me don't seem that important to me. It seems like they're probably smart enough to make a lot of these decisions. So a lot of times I would say like, well, if it was your property, what decision would you make between getting a used fridge or getting a new fridge? And like, well, I'd probably get a used fridge. And I'd say, well, then that, that's what I want you to do. I sort of got them to the point where they kind of realized, first of all, if it's like a decision that's less than $200, like you don't need to call me, just make the right decision. In a lot of situations, they just realized that I was just going to ask them if it was the, if it was your property, what would you do? <laughs> right. But I mean, obviously, there's a trust factor here, right? You, you wouldn't do that with a property manager that was after your money just trying to rip you off because they would just charge the most expensive thing they could and then, and then take the profit from that. I realized with my property manager that I had somebody who had my best interests at heart. They wanted to do the right thing for me. They wanted to save me money. They wanted to give me all the options and then let me make the decision. But they found out that I trusted their expertise because they themselves had many properties of their own. Once I'd realized that I trusted them and that they were trustworthy people, and they had six of my properties, and I had been closely scrutinizing the work that they had done while I lived there and realized that they were kind of like, I'm good to go. I trust these people and moved away. I realized like I was going to keep going with these people. But this is kind of a very important point. Once I moved away, I wasn't able to buy a property and then be involved in the um, rehab anymore. And so I convinced my managing company to do that for me, which is not the normal job of a managing company. A managing company does not usually rehab a property for you and then rent it out for you. They usually take a property that's moving ready. So because of my personal relationship with them and the fact that I'd already had six properties with them, I convinced them to, hey, I'm going to buy properties from Germany, but they're going to need a lot of work. So I'm going to need you guys to supervise the rehabs on them. I'll pay you for that. Like I'll pay you for your time. But I'm going to need you to do that. 
And then I'm going to turn over to you and then you, you guys are just going to manage them like normal. And they were against that at first, but I was kind of like, well, let's try it and see how it goes. And it worked for both of us. And so we did that for house seven through 20. It was a model that worked for us. So I had somebody on the ground that I could trust to do these like large projects to oversee them. And it happened to be the same person that was going to manage my properties for me. And that was key for me. Key that it was somebody I trusted and key that it was also going to be the same person that managed the property for me. Another thing that was very important about this was that um, whenever I went to buy a property, I had a real estate agent that would look at it for me. I had a property inspector that would inspect it for me and make a report. And those two things are very important. But another thing that I did was I always had my property management company go look at it because they're the ones that knew if the neighborhood was good and if the floor plan was good. And so they, sometimes I would have a property under contract that I was about to buy and I'd send my property manager over there and they would be like, you know what? Tenants really hate this floor plan. Like I'm going to have a lot of trouble renting this place out. And so I'd end up changing my mind and be like, well, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to buy this property then. Sometimes I'd even forfeit a deposit because of that. Yeah. That personal relationship is just so essential. And I mean, we've yeah. described that dozens upon dozens of times over the hundred plus episodes here about just how essential it is in life just to be genuine, create these relationships because you never know where they're going to take you. This was unprecedented from this property management that they would go in and help renovate. But because you yeah. had that relationship, you made it happen. And that right. really is remarkable. I'm, I'm curious, A, did you have like one particular person at this property management company that you dealt with exclusively? Was it an entire team? And also B, do you recollect what that kind of odd structure looked like where you compensated them to help oversee the renovation? This is a small property management company. It's just uh, two people. They're the ones that are handling everything for me. Well, I mean, two people that are the, the joint owners, and then they have a, a staff of like four people, and then they have like a little construction team. And that's like the whole company. Uh, and they handle like four, about, about 400 houses. From my perspective, it's kind of a small company. The way they set up their fees, it's actually pretty important because a lot of people might think that what I'm paying is high, but I'll explain to you why it's not. They charge me a 10% fee on everything, like just 10% of rents, right? And, and a lot of people will pay less than that. They might pay 8 or 7%, but I pay 10%, even though I have 20 properties now. But to me, it's totally worth it because they charge nothing to write a new lease or to find a new tenant. So when a, when a property goes vacant and they have to find a new person, there's actually like no charge for that. And that's very unusual because a lot of places will charge like half a month's rent or a whole month's rent just to go out and find a new person. And then I think you, you, you guys asked me about this earlier. It seems like this 1% rule or 2% rule in the city is so amazing, right? Like, how is it possible? There are trade-offs. When you're in a city like this where the 1% rule is working so well or even the 2% rule, you have other things going on. Like, you know, maybe you have like higher crime in a lower cost of living area. But another thing that happens a lot in, in a situation like this is you have higher turnover just because of the, the makeup of the area that I'm in. People come and go more often. But because of the way my property management company sets up the fee structure, it doesn't hurt me very much. I mean, if they charged me a month's rent every time somebody came and went, I'd be hurting a lot. But since they're just charging me a flat fee, it ends up not hurting quite as much. They're, they're actually quite good at finding people and getting them in quickly. 
So Rich, actually, that's a perfect segue into, I'm curious about the actual financials and like the accounting and how you do this from abroad, but also since you were just talking about like expenses, right? So let's just assume back of the envelope, you bought 20 properties at $40,000 and each of them are at like a 1.5% rule. So that would put you at $12,000 per month in gross rents. But Mm -hmm. do you have a sense in your details, in your Excel spreadsheets, what your actual net income is after all of your expenses? Yeah, it's been hard to calculate because I keep buying properties. And a lot of times what I've been doing is I've been letting the rents from all the other properties pay for the rehabs on the properties that I buy, if that makes sense. And so like when money's coming in from all the other properties, um, the way that my management company is set up, it's kind of like all one big account. And so like, I have like two houses that are being rehabbed by my property management company. And then I have, you know, <laughs> rent from the other 18 coming in. They're doing the work on the, the rehab work on these two other properties with the rent from the 18 others. Does that make sense? Yeah, that definitely does. I, I guess just the the CPA in me would would want to like kind of keep track of each individual property. Sure, like and I, and I do, yeah. But is that yep. possible? Like, I guess that it that's is, my real is. question. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So my back of the envelope kind of way of looking at this, I'm probably probably making a very rough way of looking at this is eight hundred dollars a month in rent. Let's just a a very simple way of looking at it is. The average property is making about $800 a month in rent. And of that, I'm probably keeping about $400 a month in rent. That's a very rough way of looking at it. And you could take $400 a month in rent and you can multiply that by 20. And that's probably a very conservative and sort of like basic way of looking at it. But I mean, that varies a lot each month. I mean, some months it can be much lower and some months it can be much higher. And of course, that depends on whether or not I'm doing major work on this property or, you know, I'm still renovating it or it's totally done being renovated and now it's just a cash flowing property. Yeah. And that makes sense. So I've heard something about the loose like 50% rule, which is basically saying approximately 50% of your gross income will go toward expenses. So that's almost exactly what you're describing, like $800 a month in rent. I'm going to net about 400 in profit after all is said and done. So obviously right at that 50%. I, w- I was just curious, I guess, if you had seen that on the ground across 20 properties, if it's smoothed out to maybe being slightly higher than that with like economies of scale or some such. But but it sounds like you're saying that 50% is a pretty good rule of thumb to go with. I would say that it seems like, you know, my properties are older. There's a lot of turnover. I would say that 50% seems about right where it is. Okay, cool. And you're also describing this one account. So it's all this money is going into one, maybe one bank account. Is this one LLC that you have set up? Does this property management company have basically the keys to this account? Or like, are you writing checks? I'm just trying to understand like mechanically because yeah. I want to do this personally, Rich. So this is so perfect for me. Like, well, how, how do yeah. I do this on the ground? Well, let me like throw a monkey wrench under this a little bit. It's not exactly perfectly 20 houses all in one LLC. I'll tell you exactly what I have. I have 16 houses that are in one LLC. And then I have two houses that are in my IRA 
And I have two houses that are in my wife's IRA. And so that's how we have our 20 houses. All right. Obviously, guys, we're not going to just not ask a follow-up on the IRA question, but I know for the sake of time and for the sake of today's episode that we just cannot do it justice in this particular episode. So we actually have asked Rich to give us all the details and we are going to be sharing how to do real estate in your Roth IRA. That is going to be played in full on the Friday roundup this week. So I hope you enjoy that. But we have so many more questions. Let's get back to the show. All right, Rich. So I really want to go a little bit deeper on like the actual accounting of this. So as you're describing it, you're getting, let's say $16,000 a month in gross rents coming in and you're netting about $8,000 in profit per month. What actually happens? Who deposits that money? Does the property management company do everything? All the expenses, are they paying it all? Are they doing everything for you? I guess the answer to that is yes. What I did a while back was I opened up a bank account in Montgomery at the same bank that like they use. Then what they're doing is when they have a check for me, they just deposit money in that bank account. And on extremely, extremely rare occasions that I owe them $1,000 or I owe them $500 at the end of the month, which is almost impossible now, I write them a check and I send it to them. But like that's pretty much all that happens. Either they deposit money in my account or I send them a check. Every month at the end of the month, it's always on the first. For me, it's like the happiest time of the month. I get this report from them. I get three reports from them. One report is my LLC, which has got 16 houses in it. It has all the details from all 16 houses. It shows um, all the rents that came in, all the repairs that were done, their management fees. And then it shows like how much money I made that month. It shows how much money is going to be deposited in my account. It's the happiest day of the month for me. <laughs> and then I get two other reports. One is my, my Roth IRA and, my, and then the other one's my wife's Roth IRA. And those have rents from two properties each. So it's still pretty cool, but uh, you know, lower amount of money and, and money that, that I won't be, be touching for several years. And that's kind of how it all works. Hopefully that, that sort of helps you understand. Yeah, no, it certainly does. And I guess my last question, just in this whole line of badgering you with questions here, because I'm just fascinated by this. So I guess if we're describing somewhere in the vicinity of like $8,000 a month in net profits, and it sounds like you're continuing to buy properties. And if these are, I think you had said roughly the market value is somewhere around 65,000 now. So, I mean, you're able to essentially buy a new property every eight months just with pure profit. I mean, is that what this looks like? Are you just buying, 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 and then accelerating that eight months down to, okay, I can buy a new one every seven months. And ultimately it's going to be just perpetuating like crazy. Take over the world. Right. I mean, (laughs) that's how the snowball works though. Right. Like, isn't that cool? For a while that was the case. Like, yes. I mean, I had six houses, I figured it out. Like, whoa, I think in a, in a year and a half, I get enough money from rent to buy a seventh house. And then when I had 10 houses, I'm like, whoa, now it's like 11 months. You know, now that I have 10 houses, like in 11 months, I have enough money to buy an 11th house. And so it's a snowball. You have a snowball of cash where the 25th house buys the 26th house that much faster. It's kind of like compound interest, but with houses. Am I going to keep doing that? I'm not sure. It's working. And I think we're going to keep doing it. But we're, I mean, I'm looking into other things. To be quite honest, I, I recently put in an offer on a multifamily property in Montgomery. And that was something where I was potentially going to use a loan for. I'm looking into other things. 
you've had Chad Carson on the show before, I think, right? Yes. I talk to him a lot. He's a good friend of mine. I talk to uh, Paula a lot. Uh, I talk to a lot of uh, real estate investors that I've met at FinCon and other uh, places a lot. I'm out there looking for something better than Montgomery. And if I find it, I'll dive into it. If I don't find it, I'll keep buying in Montgomery. I guess that'd be my answer for now. I wanted to actually go full circle in the context of financial independence, in the context of a career military guy that is now approaching 20 years in. There will be a pension waiting for you. And, and there's these different forks in the roads. I would imagine that if you stayed in the military, more promotions would continue to come your way. But clearly, I can hear it in your voice. like You're sharing this because you're passionate about it. You reached out to us. You made plans to go to FinCon, even though you were stationed in Korea because you're passionate about this topic. You're at this inflection point, and you're about to reach 20 years. Where does this go from here? What's next for you and your family? In the military... You can leave the military at the 20-year point with a very generous uh, pension. Uh, you don't have to leave at 20, but that's the earliest that you can leave. My career has been going very well, and I've been very lucky, and I've had an absolute blast in my career. I've done some amazing things. And I think a lot of people in my career field fully expect me to keep going, keep going up in the ranks and, and keep continuing in my career. But uh, kind of as you alluded to, I'm having too much fun in real estate and I'm having too much fun in this Chooseify community, in this FinCon community, in the blogging community, and just, you know, in the real estate world. I love what I've done in the military, but I wish I could devote more time to everything else. So I think I am going to get out of the military at the 20 year point, which for me is uh, two years from now. And devote more time to all of these other things that I'm interested in. Okay. Now I have a follow-up question for you because you, what you have put together is so comprehensive and you got this military member that's being stationed all over the world and is thinking, what actionable advice would he give to me? I have my choice of duty destinations and clearly the sweet spots would be like Honolulu <laughs> and, you know, maybe San Diego and right. knowing what you know now, speaking to the person that has that interest, that bent towards real estate, what actionable right. advice would you give to that individual? First of all, I think that you guys spent the beginning of this podcast digging into my frugality, right? Digging into how I saved and how my wife sort of influenced my, my change towards frugality. I think that's a big key to it. I mean, first of all, you have to be in the position. A lot of what I've done, I've done with cash, right? You have to be in the position to do that. You have to be in a, financially in a good place to be able to responsibly invest in real estate. And so you have to save and be frugal and invest well. And I would say it's extremely important to max out your IRAs and your 401ks. And if you're in the military, your TSPs. I think all that stuff's extremely important. You have to start your real estate sort of investing career from a financial position of strength. And so you have to focus on that first. There's a lot of these other podcasts, books, courses that sort of preach like, oh, you're in debt, like you don't have any money. Don't worry, like you can buy your first property with no money down or, you know, you can use like credit card debt and use your grandmother's IRA and you can like, you know, invest in real estate. And like, those are all horrible ideas. Like that is a horrible way to get started in real estate. Do it from a position of strength, do it from the right place. So that's kind of where I start is start the hard and slow way, save, save and invest and be frugal. 
I wish I would have started investing knowing what I know about the 1% rule and how you know you need to find the right kind of properties and not buy the wrong kind of properties. I wish I would have done that a lot earlier in life. I don't think I had any business buying that that townhouse, you know, that I bought in 2003. It really wasn't a great investment. I should have rented that property and not bought it. So learn everything you can about real estate and don't buy a house unless it makes sense financially. Rich, you have been so generous and open with all this information. I mean, it, it, we are grateful that you came on the show. For someone that has listened to this and says, you know, that was amazing, but I want more. What's the best way for someone to find your content and to connect with you? My blog is called Rich on Money, richonmoney.com. There's a real estate tab on there, and I have a complete guide to real estate investing. Uh, that is the best place to start. Also welcome your listeners to send me an email, richcarry at gmail.com and just, you know, ask me a question. Now on most shows, that would be the end of the interview. But on this show, Rich, we would love to give you the chance to tackle the hot seat. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. In a world drowning in debt and rampant consumption, trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation, these questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free. Welcome to the Choose FI Hot Seat. All right, Rich, question number one, your favorite blog that's not your own? It's uh, Jim Collins' blog, jlcollinsnh.com. It's the one I ran into first. Yeah, that's a life-changing blog for sure. It struck me like a bolt of lightning when I read the stock series, and it sounded like it did the same for you as well. It did. I, and I send a lot of people there. All right. Question number two, your favorite article of all time. Now, this can be one that you wrote or somebody else's. It's from the same blog, and it's, it's actually a very short one. Why you need FU money. I don't know if you guys remember that one. It's from Jim Collins' blog. I have read it and utilized it in my life many times. <laughs> it struck a chord with me. I think it might be the one I found by accident. That and then, of course, almost anything from his uh, stock series. All right, Rich, question number three, your favorite life hack. So in my job, I'm extremely busy, no free time. But what I always try, what I always try to find the time to do is uh, slow down and relax. And one of the ways that I do that is I'll usually try to find some time throughout the day to leave my office and go somewhere, go to a coffee shop and get a cup of coffee. For me, it's almost like meditating. You go somewhere, you get a cup of coffee, you sit down, just drink that coffee and relax for a few minutes. I know I've even had like the person at the coffee place say to me, like, you've been in here a couple of days in a row, like you must not be very busy. And the funny thing is, I am very busy, but I take that time. I take that time to leave the craziness of my office and the craziness of my job. And for me, it's almost like a meditation. No matter how busy I am, I get away and I meditate. You know, I, I almost it's like a meditation. Get away, order a cup of coffee, sit down you know, and spend 10 or 15 minutes kind of just drinking it and kind of just thinking about things in, in a quiet coffee shop. And I'd say I do the same thing with running. I'll go on a run. Again, I, I, I'm too busy to go running. Most people just skip the run or skip the workout because they're too busy. But I just make the time to go running. And for, for me, taking that time to go running is almost like a meditation for me where it's just getting away from the hectic schedule that I have and thinking about things. All right. Question number four, your biggest financial mistake. 
you know, after I thought I made all that money in real estate because I bought a house for 280 and it went up to 450,000 and I thought I would just keep doing that for the rest of my life and retire a billionaire. I did something called flipping new construction, which is very interesting. I um, bought new construction that wasn't built yet. And then by the time, this is in 2004, you put a deposit down on new construction. By the time the construction is actually finished a year later, supposedly it's appreciated so much in value that you can sell it to somebody else and just take that appreciation and make like a fortune. A bunch of people that I knew had already done this, so I decided to do the same thing. Unfortunately for me, the appreciation stopped happening about the time that I made my purchase. I luckily didn't lose a lot of money in this uh, flipping new construction, but I certainly didn't make money either. And it was a huge wake-up call to me. If lots of people are making money by doing something, then it's probably too late. Don't try that. Yeah, this sounds like the stock tip from the shoeshine boy, right, Jonathan? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It really is. And, you know, appreciation is very, I guess, sexy at face value. You know, you have this yeah. home that you bought for 280 and a year later it's worth 400000 And I think that sexiness makes it very addictive and that addictiveness can lead you to a dangerous place, especially if you don't realize it's a two-way street. Right. Yeah. All right, Rich, question number five, the advice you would give your younger self. Mm. I think I said this earlier, but I would have started earlier with real estate. I would have loved to have started a lot younger in buying the right kind of real estate in the right locations. As I described to you, that snowball, right? That snowball of real estate that I started pretty late in life. I started that snowball at the point in my career where I'd already been in the military for 13 years. Well, gosh, I wish I could have started that, you know, maybe at the first year, my first year in the military, but I just didn't have the knowledge and I didn't have the background and I didn't know what I know about real estate now. So if anybody else out there is listening a little bit earlier in their careers, in their lives, read up on my blog, read the right books, read up on real estate and buy the right kind of real estate in the right places that's going to cash flow right. And that's the advice I give to my younger self. All right. Now I do have a bonus question for you. And normally we ask about what is the last purchase you made on Amazon? I suspect that with you being in Korea, that probably isn't going to fly. So I think the, the better question would be, what is a purchase that you made over the past 12 months that brought the most value to your life? It's funny. I'm looking, <laughs> I'm looking at this snowball, Mike. I don't know why I want to say that, but like, I think, I think it's silly, but I bought this before I did uh, my first podcast. Uh, somebody recommended that I buy it, and I did like a small podcast, and now I've had the opportunity to do several, and it's opened up so many doors in my life, and it's opened up so many things to me, and I've enjoyed it immensely. Something small like that, this, this little mic that I bought, for some reason, has made all the difference in the world to me. Well, as someone that really appreciates good quality audio, both from the sake of a producer and uh, as a listener, you sound fantastic. So yeah, that one oh, investment, I, I mean, you might as well just be in the studio with me and Brad. Well, that's great. You guys, you guys both sound very good too. And, and obviously, you know, when you do different uh, podcasts, you hear uh, varying levels of uh, audio. <laughs> yeah, public service announcement, because we do have a lot of bloggers that are listening to this that either would like to be on a podcast as a guest in the future, or in general, will have some purpose to do that. And I will just say that when you are a guest on a podcast, someone can't see you. They can't see how awesome you look and how awesome your content is. Their initial impression of you is the quality of your audio sound. Now, you may be like, well, that's unfair. Don't they realize all this awesome stuff that I've done? 
but it's just a reality. Your audio quality is the first impression. And the first time you hear that reverb from the room or that staticky noise in the background, you've lost 25% of the audience just right out the gate. So just a small little investment like what Rich is pointing out is incredibly powerful. And we appreciate you uh, bringing that to bear with this episode. I mean, it really has been, it's enabled, I'm sure, a lot of people to immediately think about the quality of your message. And it's so powerful what you presented today. Absolutely transformative for someone that's looking at a relatable level. What does it look like to get involved in real estate, to scale it, and to build a life of freedom out of it? Thank you so much for coming on the show and being willing to share your story. No, I I really enjoyed this. This was an absolute blast. This was wonderful. Thanks to both of you. And while obviously this episode is going to have appeal for the individual in the military that's looking to do this from potentially anywhere in the world. Brad, this is by no means limited to that individual. This is something that I am going to use. This is directly the type of information that I am looking for as kind of me and you try to figure out what the heck we're doing as we explore this world of real estate. Yeah, you and me both. And this certainly transcends the military. I mean, sure, it it seems to work perfectly for rich and other military members. But yeah, this is applicable to anyone. And yeah, I mean, I just couldn't stop peppering him with questions. And you were in rare form. I mean, you are the guy that goes deep and I love that, but you couldn't stop yourself this time. (laughs) No, this this I really cannot. I probably have 50 more questions that I'll have to ask him maybe on round two or, or some such. But yeah, I'm so thankful that he took the time to answer everything with such specificity. I mean, that was really, really helpful. So I think this gave me the real mental framework for how I can approach this personally. And that is invaluable. All right, my friends, if you got value from the show, if you got value from today's episode, take one second, press the subscribe button on the platform you're listening to this on. It just lets the providers know you're getting value from the show and you want to be here when we produce additional content. If you want to support us and what we're doing here at ChooseFI, here are four easy ways. One, leave us an iTunes review. If you want to do that, just go to chooseify.com slash iTunes. Two, use our page to sign up for travel credit cards. If you want to travel the world with miles and points instead of your hard-earned dollars, then just go to chooseFI.com slash cards and get started today. Three, if you're working on the milestones of FI, set up a personal capital account to track your progress and use our affiliate link. It's completely free. And just go to choosefi.com slash PC. P as in Paul, C as in Cat. And four, and most importantly, find your friends, coworkers, and family members who might be open to this message and tell them about the podcast. Have them start with episode 38, The Why of FI. And right behind that, have them go listen to episode 21, The Pillars of FI. It is a fantastic starting place. All right, my friends, the fire is spreading. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth one life hack at a time.